welcome to The Being Leader. I'm Annabelle Graham. Welcome to this episode of The Being Leader, the podcast that discusses how we need to show up and be as leaders, reflecting on what impacts our behaviours, our relationships and our outcomes, and allows us to focus more on our approach to leading ourselves, our teams and our organisations. Today, I'm joined by Georgia Prestento. Georgia is a decision-making advisor, a behavioural scientist and a change management consultant who works with organisations who want to optimise their decision-making in order to achieve more successful outcomes. Georgia, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on The Being Leader. Hi, thank you for inviting me, Annabelle. Now, I always like the listeners to hear a little bit more about what led guests to where they are now. So it would be great if you can just sort of give me a bit of background about how did you end up specialising in, in what you do? Yeah, I guess I've always been fascinated by people, you know, observing people. Since I was a kid, I think I was a bit of a shy kid. So I was just looking around, observing people, what they do, what they say. And, and this, you know, it started that way, I think, you know, just observing and, you know, wanting to understand a little bit more. So I think that that was one of my big themes. The other one is just fixing things. I have like this, <laughs> this kind of antennas for like low tol- tolerance of uh, things not working properly. Uh, you know, bureaucratic things or inefficiency, bad customer service. The, really, I just don't like it. And I think when I just start bringing those things together, I think that just brought me to you know, after a few steps to the career that I had. So my first job was in procurement. I did some product management. And then I ended up, when I was in British Telecom, my first, um, you know, my first employer, uh, working in business improvement that essentially was change management. And that's the first time really I could bring those two things together, you know, people, behaviours, how they do things. And fix stuff. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and just fix them. And, you know, and I've done anything like optimizing, like process reengineering, designing scripts, strategy, reorganization, you know, all of those things, you know, you'll just, and it's, I did it first as an employee, I worked as a consultant, you know, then, um, you know, independently. And, and also the other thing, perhaps, is it's not just like fixing things. I don't like to put it in that category, but when I started managing people, it became very much to working with people and helping them fulfill their potential. You know, when I started managing people, coaching people, that becomes something that I, and I still am, of course, you know, really passionate about, you know, how can you actually run organizations in a way that actually is good for the employees and the customers, as well as, you know, as the bottom line. And on the change as well. So I've been working lots of international projects, different industries, different companies. So, you know, you accumulate all of that, you know, experience and expertise over time and, you know, more people to observe. And um, then a few years ago, I did a master's in behavioral science at the London School of Economics. And that was really good to, um, you know, understand, you know, the theory, the, the academic side. And, you know, bringing those things together. And I guess that's where I am here today. And then sort of, you know, my why really has become, you know, how do I inspire people to take an alternative perspective? 
And, and what I'm doing in now is via optimizing decision making. There's lots of bits in there that sort of got me got me thinking around um, around that fixing, that movement with change, that observing around behavior and thinking about how taking that alternative perspective. So before we get into that a little bit more, can you explain an idiot's guide for me and for others listening who are going, what's this behavior, behavioral science witchcraft? <laughs> um, explain to me a little bit more about what that is and why it's useful. Uh, what it is, um, it's a relatively new discipline and the way they explain it, it's just a mixture. So you have like a big pot, you put economics, you put psychology, sprinkle of neuroscience, a sprinkle of anthropology, and that's pretty much what it is. <clears throat> and it's, um, I mean, I did my first degree in economics, and you know, it's all about, you know, rational people maximizing profit, you know, all, you know, we just, everything that we do, there is a reason, and there is so much of our cognitive side in there. But essentially, people that are a bit irrational. We don't do things because, you know, we have to. We're also a bit like lazy as well. We, we, we do the easy thing, you know, take- yeah, we shortcut. Yeah. And it's just, and it's normal because if we had to think deeply about every single decision, we will just, we never got out of bed. Yeah, draining. And, yeah, it is. And, you know, the, the brain as well uses a lot of, you know, energy. So behavioral science is very much, it looks like, like people for real, this is what they do. And I think is, you know, you know, people that haven't come across it that much. I mean, that there are two great books and writers. So one of them is Thinking Fast and Slow. So there was uh, Daniel Kahneman that also yeah. won the Nobel Prize in 2002, which I thought it was really cool. So it was a psychologist that won the economics prize. Yeah. Which I thought <laughs> that's really nice. And the other, like, all the nudge theories. So I think, you know, we heard about the nudge theory, Richard Thaler, mm -hmm. again, another Nobel in 2017. And I think, you know, all those prizes, they're also good to understand, you know, it's not like traditional economics but it's just a different way of looking at the world which is more about you know this is what people do in reality and you said it you know it mixes a bit of psychology a bit of neuroscience a bit of sociology and a bit of anthropology so is it looking at patterns and understanding the patterns that people go through from a behavior point of view yeah, I mean, in a way, you can call it patterns as well. So, you know, we have a certain way of behaving and, you know, we create habits, you know, over time. Uh, for example, you know, we tend, you know, we have rules of thumbs, heuristics. So if you don't know an answer, you tend to look at what's the most similar option. Or, you know, there are things, for example, there was... Um, Cayman's prospect theory, which is, you know, loss aversion, you know, we just don't want to lose, you know, we, we rather um, not gain something than lose something that we have, even if it's not important for us. Those are all things that in a way is patterns of, you know, of behavior, of, you know, how we deal with things. And the other one probably is, you know, the way that our brain works, 
you know, still a lot of it is driven by the subconscious, you know, our primitive brain. You know, our wanting to, we are part of a society, we don't want to upset people, so sometimes we take decisions for that reason. We go with the flow because we just don't want to stand out because, you know, in the caveman period, if you stand out too much, they, you know, they abandon you. So there's a lot of those things that actually you can observe and, you know, especially in groups, in a group decisions, you have all of that, um, you know, behaviors going on. And that's why I just find all the decision-making groups really fascinated and, you know, it became what I'm doing as, you know, it's my main job. Fantastic. So thinking about that decision in groups, because groups are, you know, if you think about how we work from a team point of view, that's how we spend most of our time. Very rarely do we have the ability to make decisions on our own entirely without any input from anyone else. You know, we don't work in isolation. So what impact does that have then on how we make decisions and how we work in group environment? This is um, quite interesting. It was the topic of my master thesis, you know, all the behavioral influences of, you know, of groups when taking decisions. And I think a lot of it is about the behaviors that are hinted at already. Um, so there is a lot of social pressure and we just feel it. And, you know, sometimes we don't want to express an opinion just in case what will other people think about me? So that stops a lot of people sharing information or giving an opinion, or just saying something that it may be against the, um, you know, the rest of the group. One of the interesting findings that I found is what they call law information. So people don't share information in a group. And it's not because of this thing that we say, oh, you know, information is power. If I give it to other people, then, you know, I don't have it anymore, but it's because we are worried of what other people would think. And also if we have, if we believe that information is unique, nobody else thinks that, we may think, oh, it's wrong or it's not valuable. So there's a lot of dynamics that happen in, uh, in the group that actually stops, you know, people expressing their opinion. And there's lots of interesting experiments in general in groups. So you could have, and people literally, if all the peers, they say, oh, this sofa is blue, even if it's red, they'll just say, oh, it must be blue, because like 50 people say that. Or you're out to dinner, everybody says, oh, this wine is amazing, and you don't like it, but you're not going to say, oh, you know, I really don't like this one, you know. And, you know, and that, if you have that in a group consistently in an organization, you end up with, you know, less valuable information than you should have. So, and that's all the social pressure. There's also something else, uh, a cascade effect. So if you have a group of people and the first person agrees, then, and the second one does as well, then you have this cascade effect and it will become, increasingly difficult for people to state a different opinion. And these are all subconscious things that are happening in the group. So nobody's gonna say, oh, I'm voting in favor just because the other two people did. You just automatically do it. And that, especially if it's 
I'm thinking about, you know, if you're in a, a team and you've got two or three really senior players, you know, it could be the team manager, could be another couple who are, who are, if we've got that hierarchy in there as well, then that's going to have a real impact from a dominance point of view, because not only have we got a status threat, I don't want to speak out to you because you're a higher status than me, therefore that might impact me, but actually also I don't want to look daft among my peers. And, and everyone else has said yes, so I must be wrong. Yeah, and this is a minefield. And also it happens, as you said, often to people that are introverted, they don't feel like speaking up, or junior people specialists that you know they just know so much of their subject but you know and sometimes they are you know the subject is so complex that people just say oh you know I just don't understand it and you know that stops that conversation yeah and I'm thinking about conversations I've had with people where they said you know I I I wasn't sure if I had an opinion on it therefore I'm just not going to say anything and, then, and of course you have, sorry, biases, you know, we all have biases. And, you know, if you have a group with, you know, everything that we discussed already, few biases, not enough diversity, then you're just thinking, okay, so you start, you know, really realizing that, you know, the dynamics, they're not conducive to collaboration and taking decisions that they're good for the company and for you know the whole group and i'm assuming when you say diversity that we're not talking about it in that classic sense that we see Mm. from an hr point of view we're talking it in its true sense of diversity of opinion and thought so either we haven't got enough um voices in the game saying this is what i think this is what i think and creating that debate or and I know this is something I've seen in organizations that we don't have enough newness in some way or difference in experiences that people have had. So what I mean by that is where we've maybe got organizations where the key players in a team have been in that business for five, 10, sometimes longer years. They only know what they know and their knowledge of that big wide world outside is non-existent therefore we sort of think in like a rut but it's an unknowing rut yeah and they you know absolutely they think there's nothing else beyond that you know and that's why you just need absolutely diversity of ideas or experience you know education i mean you still have some companies that they say oh we must recruit from top universities and you think okay you know brilliant recruit the same people then i know (laughs) I think that's beginning to break out a little bit now, but you're right. There is still that sort of, it is a bias. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this, this thought process that we can, um, you know, if we go to there, we're going to get what we're looking for, but we are just going to get the same thing. So why is behavioral science useful to organizations? How can it help them? Yeah, I think it's just because everything we, we discussed, I mean, you know, tradition is what I call traditional change. So in the past, you just thought, oh, you know, that's a problem. Let's go and fix it. And, you know, sometimes you just fix it in a very generic way without understanding, you know, the behaviors of people or what drives, you know, that behaviors, for example. 
Well, what the behavioral science and behavioral change does, you'll just say, okay, yeah, let's understand, you know, why people do things in a certain way. And then is there anything that we can do to actually change it? I mean, I had, you know, um, a client, for example, that had this thing, oh, we need um, to empower people managers, which essentially sort of means, oh, you know, let them do the managing thing, you know, just, you know, the how, engage with people, motivate, rather than just going around and say, oh, you know, have you done your five actions? But ask them, you know, what was it like? What have you learned? So, you know, that, that was the problem that we're facing it. And I guess, you know, knowing traditionally would be, okay, let's run a training program. You know, let's prepare some slides, some strips, scripts, some instructions. And, and I've seen it and that doesn't work. You know, so what, you know, what I've done, I started looking, okay, what's behind it? What are the reasons that, you know, people managers don't act in a certain way? And it could be about insecurity, you know, self-confidence, fear of the consequences. If they do it wrong, they don't know how to do it. And some of them, they never thought of, you know, it was important. So based on the reasons for those behaviors, then you just start looking, okay, these are the interventions that we can do behaviorally. It could be things like, you know, how do we make it easy for them? You know, just using defaults, um, you know, using incentives. So if managers, for example, in that case, we started looking, okay, how do we incentivize them and change their behaviors by prioritizing the managing part of their role rather than, you know, for example, you know, getting, you know, projects done on time. You know, social norms as well, which is something that I'm really interested around, you know, behavioral science. We tend to follow what other people around us do. So if you just manage to pick up some key influences, you know, people around the company, they actually, they're easily demonstrate those behaviors, you know, promote them, you know, showcase them. And then other people will follow because that becomes, you know, this is the kind of company that we are. You know, we, you know, this is the kind of behaviors that, um, you know, we promote using the right messengers as well. You see a lot of, you know, programs that they felt flat because the messenger, the person promoting the change, it was not trusted. It was not respected. It was just not the right people that were not listening to this person as much as they would have somebody else. So these are all the things and elements, and you know, I could talk about probably a whole day about it, uh, that behavioral, behavioral change you know, looks at. And that's why for me, it's much more effective than really you know, some of the things that we used to do in the past. So I think I really like there's a couple of things that you mentioned there. So that one about getting really good advocates mm -hmm. um, for change. And I remember doing that years ago. I used to have a, a region when I was when I worked when I had a proper job and I worked in retail. I used to have one manager within my region of I think I had about 18 stores at that point. And um, they were the ones that I knew if I got them on board. If I sold it into her first, because A, everyone loved her, and B, she was super positive and always liked to try new things. If I could test it there, get her on board, then actually she'd do all my selling for me. 
in some ways she do that so that that importance of advocates but also the role modeling so that learning by seeing other people doing it and I love the fact that you said it's and it's made me think actually for for programs have we got the right role models because actually if that person leading it or selling it isn't role modeling those behaviors you know as you and I know we'll go into organizations and and you may at a middle level stick a, a development intervention in with you know a population of managers or leaders but if the people above aren't doing it they very quickly get disillusioned yeah. because they're not seeing it and just research so the, the other thing that i do i just co-founded this um networking about to um called thank goodness is monday so we had a session on uh, on ethics love it and this is like really important in there because we always you know there's always like the bad guy the bad apple but essentially that person behaves in a certain way because everybody around does and it just like you know all the famous cases you can reconduct to that so if you're a new joiner in the company and your manager your peers they steal pencils You'll just say, oh, it's okay to just, you know, pick up the stationery from, you know, from the cupboard. Or, you know, and then you end up, you know, fiddling expenses of embezzling fun. But, you know, all of those things. So no, nobody that joins the company would do it thinking, oh, I'm just going to be a bad guy. It just sort of you behave. And again, it goes back to the social norms, the context, like the people around you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've said I've lost count the amount of times I've said that to people where I've said, look, you haven't made a bad decision when you've hired somebody. You probably made the right decision. You know, you hired the right person. People don't start jobs to do a shit, shit job. Yeah. We've got to look at what happened when they came in all bouncy and fresh faced and excited to where they are now. And, and what was the bit in the middle that went wrong? Because that's our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, or the team's responsibility, but there's something that's gone wrong in the middle that's gonna that's causing an issue. So when you're thinking about the, you know, the organizations and the teams that you work with, what type of issues do you see, especially around that decision making thing? What type of problems come up? Yeah. I mean, you always start, you know, every last time I always like to just sort of, you know, to me it's about understanding um, you know, the organization. And you're know, you just start having a dialogue and conversation and things that come up, they are, oh, it takes too long to take decisions. or oh, it costs a lot of money because, you know, we just sort of, you know, for that reason, or, you know, the meetings, they are just, oh, you know, my team, the meetings stay too long, you know, there's just no structure, you know, it's negative dynamics, it's a bit dysfunctional. So it started with all those things and then you, as you're doing coaching, you know, you just sort of dig in till you just find out, you know, a couple of things that, you know, you just, you know, you want to, you know, to look at. Um, you know, for example, there was, you know, there was this company that were just preparing, you know, the business cases, the annual planning, all of that. And it was a smaller company, part of, you know, a larger, you know, larger corporate. Um, you know, based somewhere else. And one of the things that I noticed, it was that it was taking them, um, because it was quite small, it was, um, everybody had a different opinion of the process. So after the third person that I spoke with, 
you know, everybody, you know, was drawing the process and it looked different every time. So I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. And this is just, you know, the way they were operating. So the decision was taking a long time because the mindset, it was a startup. And actually they just needed to bring in a process some structures and governance around it. So you could say it was taking too long, but you know, the real root cause is that, you know, that there was a missing thing in how they were organized as a governance. And then from there, so I just started using, so I have this framework, which has got like three elements around decisions. So one of them is around information. So we need to have, you know, useful information, which is, you know, relevant and accurate. And, you know, we have so much data that actually that's more difficult than it looks like to actually distill all the information till we have that because, you know, a decision is based on the information that you have. And generally decisions is all about reducing uncertainty. Uh, the second one, as I mentioned, is around the governance. You know, do we have a process? Do we have in a way of taking decisions? You know, just working with clients where, you know, they just don't have a means or a tools or techniques to take the decisions in a group. They meet and they'll just see what happens. And the third one, as we already talked about, is everything around the, the group dynamics. So I sort of always start using, okay, these three elements in the framework and then just see, you know, which ones, for example, we should uh, focus on or start with. Yeah. So, so which bits out of alignment? Is it the fact that yeah. we haven't got enough information? Is it yeah. the fact that there's no governance and process in place or yeah. no structure, or everyone has a different structure? Yeah. Um, or is it actually we've got a dynamic issue that we need to deal with? Yeah. Nice. And um, sometimes know. it's bits of everything, but there's always one that you need to start from somewhere. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 genuinely and generally, you know, if if everyone's getting along and everyone's having a say, then the dynamic thing is probably less of the issue. We'll look at more, yeah. look at more of the others. When you said, um, you know, off, people had a different process after you'd asked three or four people, that reminded me of, have you come across Tom Wujek? No. OK, oh, I thought you would have done. Um, he's got so Tom Wujek is an American guy. He's a systems theorist around process mapping and how to map systems. And he, there's a great TED talk called How to Make Toast. Mm. And the whole piece around how to make toast is if you ask a room full of people, can you draw the process for how to make toast? You will get all manner of different versions, yeah. you know, from one starting with Tesco's loaf of bread and toaster and somebody else showing the wheat in the field being grown to be able to make the bread and it goes on forever. So it's a really nice intro activity. Um, for people to have a think around, you know, how do you go about doing this? But it it then links into getting people in groups to do exactly the same thing with the process that they're doing and then narrow down that until they get root causes that they need. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be cumbersome. So I know when you start talking with people, you just use the word structure, a process, they go, oh my God, you know, this is just too much. But to me, it's a simple of, you know, do we have a good agenda? And we formulated the decision question, actually, what is the decision that we need to take? Which is not always, you know, straightforward. And you can just describe a question for a 
decision in lots of different ways. But also, you know, the meeting flow. So one of the, you know, intervention, for example, it would be, do people talk in terms? Do we vote anonymously? Do we have presentation by experts? You know, which information we need? So if you have all of those things in place and the group is used to work in a certain way, actually you get there already as opposed to getting a meeting and sometimes spending one hour just deciding how to decide and then you have to meet again. And this is, to me, that's what I call structure, which is, you know, having those things in place actually allows you to have the ideas and just to be much more creative. They actually have to start, as they say, inventing the wheel every time. So if you think about the teams or the organizations that you've worked with, how many people do actually have a decision-making structure in place? Not that many. I actually have a survey out uh, asking, you know, some of, you know, those questions as well. And, you know, it's, you know, I had a few responses, not like thousands of them, but the initial ones, not that much. And to me, I just see, you know, it's become my mission to bring, you know, confident decision-making because I think it's, it's going to make it easy for everybody. Yeah, and I know, I'm, I'm smiling as you're saying that because I'm thinking of the teams and teams and organisations I work with and I'm now thinking nobody has that in place at all. <laughs> in fact, they're, they're, they're so... It's not that they won't make decisions, but they then don't take the actions. So they don't follow up on the actions so and nothing ends up getting done. You know, so what we don't do at the end, so we don't agree outcomes. We cram 45 things onto an agenda in an hour and think for some ridiculous idea that we're going to actually get it done yeah. when actually we probably need to talk about two. Um, and then we don't recap on the actions at the end. So nobody follows up. Madness. Yeah, I know. And then a couple of weeks afterwards, you start again. And, and that's what, I mean, one of the services that I developed is around facilitating those meetings. You know, literally just take the burden, you know, from, you know, the good way from the group, just say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll organize it. You know, I'll look about the people attending, the agenda, I create a structure, what I call like the decision space, you know, based on the needs of the group and the decision, you know, what kind of, voting you know how do we present the information or how do we do it that and then of course absolutely what do we do with the decision you know we need to capture it somehow and you know somebody needs to do something about it so as you were talking there there was a couple of things coming up for me i bet that i know i see within some clients um and i've definitely seen you know when i've been part of teams one is around the need to get to a consensus and the other is around coming back to a decision so revisiting it after say a period of time so when you think it's done and dusted it ends up being pulled back up again yeah so where what is it that causes those well, if we start with the need for the consensus, I think it goes back to what we talk about, you know, we are um, social creatures. You know, we just want to belong to a group. So reaching consensus is, you know, it comes naturally, something that we strive for. 
And sometimes, you know, because on a lot of programs and strategy, you have the need for having a united front, you know, that's another reason why, you know, there is that, you know, thing that drive. So, and I think revisiting as well, I think it goes back to that governance. So if you don't have, you know, the confidence and the understanding of what is important in a decision, you just go back to it. I've seen in some groups, and I think, you know, you have as well, where it is not clear who the ultimate decision maker is. There is always one. But if a group is very consensual, you know, they just want to everybody to be happy and so-called collaborative, it's very difficult for that person to just say, okay, it's me, you know, the buck stops with me, and this is the decision. Mm -hmm. And these are some of the behaviors they, you know, they go on in that. Yeah, I can, I can definitely recognize that. I know for, for some teams that I were in, A, there's that not wanting to make a decision or the leader not actually being the person with the power. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they might say, let's do it. But in some ways, they're waiting for the, and it might be the number two, or it might just be the one who's got the popular vote. We're waiting for them to say yes. And if they don't say yes, then we don't know where to go. So therefore we go back on the decision because we aren't sure whether they're happy or not. And that's the bit that's going to get the group to go. Yeah. Because yeah. you have a group of people and there's so much going on in their, you know, conscious, their subconscious, you know, all those different things going on. And that's what sort of creates this, you know, sometimes good decisions and sometimes, you know, the difficulty yeah and you wonder how on earth we actually get anything done <laughs> with all of that going on. as well <laughs> <laughs> and we do i think it's amazing that we do but i think you know the potential to do it better to fixing it <laughs> you know i think is there absolutely so if you are going in to an organization you said you know the the key things that you tend to look at is have they got you the right useful information is there a process or governance in place and how are the group dynamics? What else would you would you look at? I think it's just those three and everything else is, um, I think it's the same for you. We've just been working with so many different people. You have some kind of intuition. Mm -hmm. So that you pick up the vibes, you know, you get a sense of how the company works. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of use, you know, I tend to use that insight to actually, you know, speed up in a way you know how i work that's part of my data gathering as well oh and of course you know i just like data to me it's just about measuring you know how you know how they do things so the initial to me is just the intuition you get a sense of the company and then just thinking okay you know how can i measure things and it could be you know speed of decisions or you just do some kind of you know questions or one-to-one -one coaching session with the decision makers I'm a big fan of observation. It's a bit difficult at the moment, but you know, there's nothing like sort of seeing, you know, how, you know, how people interact, you know, with each other, or actually seeing where does the information come from? What do people talk about? What's the language? What's the narrative? 
So these are all things that enable you to understand more, you know, the context, you know, of the change. And you said, you know, it, it's pretty difficult at the moment to observe people. Well, it, getting in a room is not going to be the best thing, not going to be the easiest thing, it's got to be said, you know, bearing in mind that we're in varying degrees of tears and lockdowns. But have you seen a change in behaviour around that decision-making piece because of the, the, the move to virtual working, which we've all done this year? I think what I've seen probably is more some kind of reluctance to taking decisions. I think a little bit more just because it's, we have little information. So in general is we are in the situation this year, which we've not had before. So, and generally we take information based on data, historic data, it's about a production or, you know, do we have orders in place? You know, what our customers are doing? So all of those things that, you know, companies would have the view of what's gonna happen within a week, a month, one year. So some of those things, just because we don't know literally what's gonna to happen tomorrow, are we allowed to go out to, to the shops? And I think all of that makes decisions more difficult. It increases the uncertainty. I just wrote um, probably just one or two weeks ago an article which was all around how, you know, I believe uncertainty has changed. What about uncertainty of a decision used to reside in the long term? We didn't know what was gonna happen in, you know, one year or five years time. Now the uncertainty is much stronger in the present. And either like optimism bias or hopefulness, you know, we think that on one year, in one year's time, it will be okay. But we are not sure. And the difficult decisions, they are about the present. Yeah, and I, 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 I get that, because I think that then it's interesting about that reluctance because of certainty. And I know, and I suppose it's probably true now, I know of in the past, I've, I've worked with lots of teams through restructures and there's always been that case of we can't plan, we don't know, what do we do? And, and, and this paralysis sits in where people don't do anything because they're not sure what they can do. And, and I know I've always said to them, make the timescale shorter. The shorter your timescale, you know, even if you're planning a week out, or two weeks out or a month out, you probably can see that. And that then increases the certainty because we've got better line of sight. So in some cases, it's, I suppose it's saying to people, okay, you probably can't plan in three months time. So you therefore have to make one of two choices, either make it short term, knowing that you're just gonna have to make a lot more or make one for three, six months time or whatever it may be, perfectly happening, happy and prepared to know that you're gonna to have to change your mind. Mm -hmm. And I think people really struggle with changing their minds after they've made decisions. Yeah. Because they've got the new thing. info. Because we make the decision with the best info we've got at the point at which we make it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and that's the thing around decision. I was just leaving it till the end as my, my closing remark, but it's about the process, not the outcome. We can't control the outcome. You know, there are just so many different factors at play. The only thing we can control is the process. Even in simple things, let's say you want to buy a new TV. 
you know, the process is you do the research, you read the reviews, you ask your friend who knows everything, and then you just buy it. If in six months time, like this amazing new model comes out, it's nothing you can do about it. You know, your decision was based on the information you had at the time. And by doing that, you actually decreases some of the pressure. You don't have regret because actually you just say, yeah, I follow all the steps. It's not like you go in the shop and you just say, yeah, I want that one in the corner. You actually do your research and that helps. And it's also being quite comfortable to go, right, I've made the decision now. If it changes in a month, that's fine. We'll change the yeah. decision. We'll change, you know, we'll change what yeah. we're going to do. But we've got to do something now. Yeah, and it is it's that flexibility and just people absolutely that they are they're feared of changing their mind and not just say, Oh, we decided six months ago we must do it that, that way. Just no, you know, you just it's okay. And also not taking a decision is a decision. Yes. And you sometimes it's say, the right one. Yeah, just say it's we're gonna yeah, I'll just go back in and put a time, just say, you know, in one month's time, one month's time, let's go back to it. And mm. that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's that piece around choice. People struggle with it. Yeah. And okay, that, that was one of my other tips. Sometimes we have too much choice. And I think we just struggle with decisions because you have, you know, go back to the TV, you get like so many. You just go to a supermarket, shelves, you know, full of products. Um, so having too much choice, they can become overwhelming. So one of the things is around, okay, how do I simplify? You know, how do I remove some of that? This is just a fun quote. It was from um, Barack Obama. And he said, I only have two suits, a gray and a blue. I have so many big decisions to take that I just need to remove you know, some of those, you know, what I eat, what I wear, it'll just make it easy. Yeah. I'll say, you know, one of the things I don't like, you know, restaurants with huge menus. And you just think, oh, there's just so much. So I'll just say, okay, let's keep it to five things, cook them well, because it's much easier to cook five things well than, you know, 50. And that makes it easy, you know, for, you know, for the consumers, for the users and for them as well. Yeah, it's why I usually for sometimes months, if not years on end, end up having the same breakfast every morning because I can't cope with that choice. Dinner and lunch are different most days, yeah. but breakfast, you know what? First thing in the morning cannot be bothered with different options. Just, you know, get up, same thing, eat. I know, same here. That's so. all you need. <laughs> I, but I think we all do it. And, and it's that when you look at when I'm working, especially with coaching clients, I find looking at habit formation really interesting and how you create habits. And I send them off to Gretchen Rubin's site quite frequently and get them to look at the habit yeah. formation for what their tendencies are and, and what makes them do it. But actually, I remember getting a few clients to track their habits and to track, you know, what they did. And they said, <laughs> I remember one person going, I gave up by about five o'clock on day one because I realized quite how boring I was because everything was exactly the same I'd sort of just I had the same breakfast mm -hmm. I had the same lunch I put the same things on I did this he said my routines were ridiculous but that's about you know just decreasing yeah. the amount of decisions that we have I to know, make and especially at the moment I think we all realize this here that it can be quite you know the whole environment can be quite taxing 
and you know chunking it up looking at your priorities reducing options they're all things that they just do as well in terms of you know our mind and our emotions and our spirit however you want to call it absolutely so as, as some parting tips we've got your lovely three-step framework um, for people to think around from an organizational point of view but if we were thinking about you know whether it to be the individual or to a team if there were three key things that you would recommend to them to help make better decisions yeah well you already stole two of them so one of them was going to be the process not to the outcome you know so don't look at it you know look at it that way and also you know don't be overwhelmed you know you just you know don't worry too much you know it can be difficult to take decisions and that could be our personal decisions or it could be a CEO having to take you know you know a lot of you know tough ones under pressure also would say self-awareness you know understanding and I have some you know clients that I coach around decisions you know what is your decision style how do you work within a group how do you relate to other people when you're taking a decision what are your biases do you use intuition? Do you just sort of like to look at data and in what proportion? So, you know, raising that level of awareness is, you know, is very useful. And the other one, probably, I mean, it's, it's a huge subject, so that would be another, uh, another tool, but it's all around the intuition. It's, uh, which is absolutely fascinating subject. So, and I think it's important to practice your intuition as well you know, picking up those cues in the environment that help you take the decisions. And it works for, you know, some topics. For example, you know, I've been working with lots of different companies. As I said before, I go, you know, I go to a new client and I get the vibes. You know, there are some things I don't have any tuition whatsoever. You know, I have to choose like a pension. I got no idea. You know, all those things that, you know, it depends what's, what's important to you. You actually grow that level of understanding. You pick up the cues for the environment. You just learn from what happens. So that, that's another kind of important as well. But I say it's just is another subject, quite complex. So it's thinking about, you know, where do I use my intuition? Yeah. Um, understanding my process yeah and, and so yeah. Or, or having a process yeah and not worrying too much or being overwhelmed so shortening the process or yeah. or delaying the process depending on the decision depending on what it is fabulous so hopefully now that will mean we go away being decision making machines Either that or neurotic, because we've sat yeah. and analysed it to such an extent. I know. I don't like to think about machine. I mean, there's a lot of talk around AI and machine decisions and all of that. I I rather have, you know, a little bit quirky, irrational human being taking the decision. <laughs> well, I, th I think we're all right. I think I think we've got a fair few yeah. of those still kicking around at the moment. So uh... yeah. <laughs> I know they're good with all you know the biases and the whole that um, challenges. It, it would become far too predictable if we were just trying to uh, 
yeah. assess what machines were doing all the time and we didn't yeah. have the fun of people watching into the process they have their uses there are you know instances where you know they're just you know they're better than it yeah. still but i think we still have to take so many decisions you know every day and to me it's you know it's just about you know taking more confident decisions mm -hmm. that's it we can't do anything else reduce uncertainty and become more confident in what we do fabulous well look georgia thank you it's been an absolute pleasure to um, explore decision making and all of the different aspects of it, which I don't think I'd ever quite recognised before. So thank you for joining me today. I know. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Being Leader. If you enjoyed this and found it useful, then please share it with your teams or a friend or colleague who may find it useful too. We can only grow our listenership by you telling more people about it. And thank you to those of you who have listened into the episode so far. Thanks for listening to The Being Leader. 